Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Do you feel good about yourself because you're drinking water instead of soda? Be wary of that water. <laughs> Joining us now is Seth Siegel. He is author and activist, member of the Council of Foreign Relations. Uh, joining us here in our interactive broker studios, he is the author of a new book, Troubled Water, What's Wrong with What We Drink? I want to talk to you about the book and about the sort of larger concept here. And, and you said right before we went on air, I'm not here to scare anybody. And yet, when I was reading through your materials, uh, it's a little bit unnerving to think that a lot of the water that people drink, it's not just Flint, Michigan, uh, is contaminated. That's correct. Almost everywhere in America, there are contaminants in our drinking water. And this is probably the largest unspoken of public health threat or menace in the United States. There's a large number of different chemicals that get into our systems through our drinking water that are having unknown effects on our bodies, on our endocrine systems is the technical phrase that affects growth, attention span, sexual interest, fertility, as well as the possibility of cancer. Some of those things are already proven scientifically, and some are now in the process of being investigated, but I would argue they're not being investigated aggressively enough by the EPA an organization that, whether it's a Democratic or a Republican president or Congress, is unfortunately inactive. We're not active enough in pursuing what we need to have pursued to get the best health profile for all Americans. All right. So if we don't have the best water, what needs to change within the U.S. to improve the quality of our water? Well, first of all, there aren't nearly there are about 100,000 chemicals that are in commerce in the United States, maybe even more. And you would think that 70% of them, 90% of them would be under some type of investigation or regulation by the EPA because some significant percentage of them get into our drinking water and some percentage of those have an effect on our health. But of that 100,000 chemicals that are in commerce in the United States, it sounds hard to believe this, but it's true, only 70, 70 are being regulated by the EPA for drinking water purposes. And as shocking as that low number is, even more shocking, given how much chemicals is used in daily life in America, even more shocking is the fact that the last time the EPA regulated any chemical whatsoever or any contaminant whatsoever was 23 years ago. They have been inactive for a generation and longer, and that is putting our health at, th at risk. Is there any map of where we can and can't drink water? <laughs> well, tell me where you live, and I'll let you know. Okay, I'll give you my address <laughs> after this. But seriously, I mean, is there anyone tracking uh, or well, sort of trying to do this scientifically? And well, actually, there's an organization called the Environmental Working Group where on their website you can punch in your zip code, and they can tell you under the federally filed uh, documents by each utility what contaminants have been found in that zip code's water. Whether or not that's particular to your particular tap, Lisa, I can't say for sure, but invite me over for lunch and I'll bring my testing okay, kit. Okay, great. That's fantastic. <laughs> We've got a deal. All right, so if water filtration plants, I thought that was the answer. Yeah, you would think so. The problem, the problem, Paul, is that both on the wastewater side and on the water filtration, which is where they distribute the water to our homes from, on both sides, we're using technologies that are about 100 or more years old. And although in the interim, places have been rebuilt and they're pretty and they have nice parking lots and beautiful reception areas, the truth is that the technologies being used never grew up along with the time that America became what we'll call a highly medicalized society, where now one, uh, where 70% of all Americans 12 and over take at least one pharmaceutical uh, product a day, 
Um, people, people, uh, about 20% of Americans, 12 and over, take five or more prescription pills a day, and that all gets into our water stream. On the inbound side, we still do what we did 100 plus years ago to get rid of cholera and dysentery and typhoid fever. We put a, a dot of, of chlorine or chlorine-like product in it to, to cleanse the water, but we don't do anything to remove from that water these pharmaceutical residues and other chemicals that have found their way into our water stream such that I'll give one example of many that are in my book, Troubled Water, of just one. A scientist, independent scientist with no ax to grind, went ahead in the Great Lakes, vast amount of water, so it'd be diluted like crazy, you would think. She tested fish in all five of the Great Lakes, and in all five of the Great Lakes, she found in their brains and in their organs and their muscle, she found residues of, of, of all kinds of psychiatric medicines like Zoloft and Celexa and 14 other medications. Now, if that's going there, that water is then being sent back to our homes for us to drink, and we are getting that dosages back in micro quantities. And we're getting that in magnified uh, amounts also for eating the fish. I'm just trying, I'm, I'm going through this extra extrapolation and getting increasingly concerned. I'm just wondering, you know, how normal is this with other countries as well? I mean, is there just sort of this problem globally, or is the U.S. particularly bad? The more, the more, industrialized, the more industrialized your society is, the more likely you are to have these problems. Now, there are some countries, uh, particularly Israel and Singapore, that have very aggressive systems for purifying their water for reasons unrelated to uh, necessarily health reasons, but really for water scarcity reasons. They have a reason to do this. And there are some parts of the United States, and I talk about in a chapter, Orange County, California, which has made a decision to basically ignore the EPA guidelines, go way above it. And they demonstrate the fact that using known technologies at very reasonable prices, you can have the safest drinking water possible. You can have pure water. Paul, you would think that if they had Zoloft in the water or Prozac <laughs> or something, everybody would be a little bit happier. A little bit happier, exactly. So, it's, Seth, so... Private versus public water utilities. Tell us the, the compare and contrast there. Okay, so, so this was a piece that I wrote the other day for the Wall Street Journal. And I want to I highlight something that is a completely unknown fact in American life. Even when I talk to members of Congress and senators, they have no idea this is the case. You would think, rationally speaking, 50 states... Oh, maybe every state should have at least one water utility, maybe two, maybe three. So maybe there should be 300, 400, maybe 500 water utilities in the United States, tops. Even though you could say that one utility could cover several states. We have in the United States over 50,000 water utilities. One county, Los Angeles County, has 200 separate water utilities. These are very tiny. They have no ability to have the financial well wherewithal in order to get the financing that they need to make sure that they can hire up-to-date, uh, up, that they can buy up-to-date technologies, hire the most advanced scientists and, and engineers, and also fix their broken uh, infrastructure. Just it is crazy. Just real quick here, who has the interest of keeping all of these smaller utilities open? The utilities. Okay. So, I mean, but, but, but no one in the public, Lisa, nobody in the public should for a second think that this is a good idea. And it isn't a good idea. That's why one of the main thrusts of my book, talking about public health and water, is to say there are four big takeaways from my book, one of which is we must consolidate our drinking water utilities. And by the way, I, a second point that I made in the journal article is that it turns out that about 15% of American utilities are, are in private hands, which is investor-owned hands, whether they're public companies or private companies. Remarkably, digging deep into EPA uh, health data, which a couple of professors have done, 
you, re you learn something remarkable, which is that although you would think that public utilities have the public's interest in mind, actually there's a much higher incidence of contaminated water in public utilities. And the reason for that is because mayors want to keep the price yep. of water low and therefore the, you don't right. get the outcomes you want. Seth Siegel, thanks so much for joining. Fascinating Thank discussion. You. Seth Siegel, activist, uh, author, member of Council of Foreign Relations, uh, author of Troubled Water, What's Wrong with What We Drink? That's coming October 1st. And also author of Let There Be Water, Israel's Solution for a Water-Starved Star World. I am very interested in that. Tom Friedman, New York Times op-ed today on that topic, using the work of Seth. Very interesting. Time to check in with Bloomberg Opinion. We're joined by opinion columnist uh, Eric Balchunas. He's a senior ETF analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. And Eric, when you come in here, typically we talk about what new cool ETF Vanguard is launching. A little bit different twist today. Now they're talking about getting into the private equity business. What's going on with our favorite ETF issuer? <laughs> yeah, I mean, anytime you hear Vanguard getting into something, uh, most people shudder, especially if you're in that business. <laughs> but I would say if you're in private equity, don't worry so much. This is really aimed at the advisory business, wealth management. This is Vanguard. That's what they want to disrupt here. So if you are an advisor and you want to get bigger clients, institutional clients, you need private equity. So this is just to sort of round out their other offerings. It's right in the press release. It says here, part of an ongoing effort to further expand the suite of products to our advisory clients. And Tim Buckley said back uh, in March of last year, we have he's been a, really... He's the CEO of Yeah, Vanguard. he's the CEO of Vanguard. Yep. To me, this quote is really who should be on alert here. We have been really pleased with the price competition we have introduced in the mutual fund sphere. Uh, we liked that we have had mu that much of an impact, but the area that really needs to come down in price is advice. Okay, this is, this is really a compelling point because my first initial uh, take on this was this is where the fees are, private equity. And so, of course, Vanguard's going to want to get into private equity, but it's being sub-managed by somebody else. This isn't necessarily them building out their own private equity capacity within the house. This is more about what you're saying, which is to have a bigger suite of offerings to institutions. Is that is that the right read of this? Yeah, I, I'm going to bet there's no uh, th there was nothing in the press release about the what the cost would be. But I'm going to bet it's going to be on the cheaper side for a private equity fund, probably on the expensive side if you're talking ETF prices. But Vanguard's not going to do anything that's like, you know, too okay. out of control price wise. So then Granted, the big loser here is the advisory uh, business, but does this also start to put pressure on private equity fees in a way that we really haven't seen until now? It can. And, you know, you cannot underestimate Vanguard. I was looking at the flows this year. Vanguard takes in more than everybody every year. But this year, what's interesting is Fidelity, BlackRock, uh, Schwab, they're all starting to catch up to Vanguard. But the reason they're catching up is because they've all just copied Vanguard and they offer dirt cheap beta. So in a way, Vanguard is responsible for the whole enchilada. Now, if they get into private equity and they see clients maybe come over and work with them, it's possible, but I see the price pressure in private equity, and I talked to Paul Goldberg, our P analyst, and he's uh, very adamant about this as well. That's not gonna come for a while. We think medium, long-term at best. But right now, their advisory business is up to 161 billion, and it basically is only a couple of years old. So that's a fast, growth for that business. And remember, they have all these fund investors who grew up with them and now have more complicated life matters. So they've got this natural pool of money coming in that they're going to uh, offer advice on. And their fees are low. The highest fee you can pay is 30 basis points. But if you have over 25 million, they charge you five. 
Wow, it's just extraordinary. So who are gonna be initially kind of the customers for this private equity? Because I wouldn't think it would be appropriate for every you know, individual investor, for example. Uh, in institutions, right? Okay. So you're going to have to be qualified. So, I mean, here's the quote from the press release. Many institutional clients seek alpha sources not readily available in the public markets. This also speaks to a bigger issue, which is uh, the private equity markets are growing, public equity markets not growing as much. And some people uh, estimating that regular fund companies are going to have to get into private equity to keep up with the times. So who are the big advisory firms that should be on notice? I'd say, well, all the big ones, Merrill, UBS, uh, and then also, I think RIAs to a degree. I think the RIA business, if you are a specialist and you're local, probably fine. But anyone in the middle middle level or bigger, I think that's who Vanguard typically takes out, the how, big guys. How does Vanguard lower the advisory fees here? What's their secret sauce? Well, the secret sauce is the mutual ownership structure. They're basically designed like a co-op. So their investors are... Vanguard's not a public company, no. is it? No. That's why it, not much is known about it. That's but it's, right. It's, First of all, it's Malvern, Pennsylvania, yeah. private company. They keep such a low profile, and yet $6.2 trillion assets under management. Yeah. Every time they get new profits in, they instead of you know, doing things with the, that money, they typically vote because the uh, fund investors are the shareholders. So, of course, they're going to vote to lower the fees. So for 50-some years, they've been lowering the fees on funds. And I, I like to say, they, would, they were lowering fees before it was cool. Now everybody wants to do it. They're already at 10 bips everywhere. So in, in their mind, I think they are much more playing a different game. They're not looking for profits. They're looking to just lower costs for investors everywhere. So if Fidelity gets uh, flows offering index mutual funds for two basis points, I think Vanguard takes that as a win for them. And I think if they can maybe have an effect on private equity, they'll probably take that as a win as well. But I think ultimately right now their purpose is to uh, build out this advisory business called the Personal Advisory Service, PAS. Probably the three scariest letters if you're an advisor right now. Yeah, PAS. <laughs> Eric Balchunas, thank you so much for being with us of uh, Bloomberg Intelligence, our ETF guru here. is a busy time down in Washington, D.C., what with uh, the State of the Union address last night by the president, impeachment wrapping up uh, today in the Senate, uh, and then the Democratic presidential race well underway. Let's get the latest. We turn to Lonnie Chen. Lonnie is the David and Diane Steffi Research Fellow at Hoover Institution, also a director of domestic public studies and a lecturer in the public policy program at Stanford University based in Stanford. Lonnie, thanks so much for joining us. Let's start with the State of the Union address last night. What are your key takeaways? Well, you know, I thought that the speech was effective as, you know, the president's sort of campaign kickoff in earnest. You know, obviously the president's been running for re-election but the speech last night was an opportunity for him to articulate what he believes the accomplishments of his administration has been. And if you look at the policy he discussed, a lot of it was aimed squarely at the base of the Republican Party, really trying to animate and turn out those voters, which is going to be key to the success of his reelection campaign. So you saw themes like immigration, cultural issues like abortion. These are issues, obviously, that aren't necessarily aimed at swing voters or independent voters or aimed at Republicans. And getting that vote out is going to be critical. So uh, I thought as a re-election campaign speech, the president did what he needed to do. Uh, and, and now I think it's up to Democrats to define their race and pick a nominee. 
Lonnie, you're an incredible guest for us to have today. I'm I'm very glad you're here, given the fact that you've advised the Romney and Rubio Republican uh, presidential campaigns, and you've seen the way that the sausage is made in a lot of ways. I'm wondering, especially as some of the polls come out, the Gallup one in particular, showing President Trump with a record high approval rating, the bifurcation right now, the sort of dispersion between the Republicans and the Democrats becoming increasingly sort of excuse me, hard line in their approaches. And I'm wondering, from your perspective, do we have a sense of whether the Republican Party or the Democratic Party is getting bigger in terms of representing uh, overall population in the country? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think the the Republican Party, by and large, the the base has consolidated in the Republican Party. And I don't think you're seeing necessarily a whole lot of people affiliating with the Republican Party now. I think what you are seeing is a lot of people who've decided that they'll support President Trump regardless of the partisan label. Uh, you know, we oftentimes talk about, for example, Midwestern voters in states like Iowa and Michigan that voted for President Obama twice, but in 2016 voted for President Trump. I don't know if they would consider themselves Republicans or Democrats. I think they might consider themselves Trump voters first and foremost. Uh, on the Democratic Party side, I don't see their share of the electorate growing, uh, unless you're talking about, again, consolidating their support in coastal and urban areas. So I, I think what's happening is increasingly a phenomenon where voters are, are trying to say that they're independent. And we have to really dissect what independent means. Does it mean that they're truly independent in the sense that they could vote for a Republican or a Democrat? Or does it mean that they're independent in a more traditional sense, which is that they lean one way or the other and are inclined to vote for a Democrat or Republican? I tend to think we're in an era where people are are de-aligning themselves from political parties. And what that means is opportunity for politicians like Trump who are a little bit out of the box. A little bit. Lonnie, so the impeachment process wrapping up today, officially at least within the Senate, what do you think, if anything, the lasting impact uh, will be on President Trump, particularly as he heads into uh, re-election mode? Yeah, I've been saying for a while, I think that this impeachment saga is going to be a distant memory by the time we get to October and the fall campaign leading into the November elections. I, I really think that, you know, while it's dominating the news now, I think, by and large, voters are going to be concerned about a whole different set of other issues, not not impeachment by the time they go to cast their votes. I think the pocketbook issues, jobs in the economy, health care, those are going to be the important ones that voters are going to turn to. So I know the, the impeachment saga is difficult to, to not cover, uh, but the reality is that for most voters, this is not going to be an issue that they particularly care about. Lonnie, since you've advised both the Marco Rubio and Mitt Romney campaigns, Both of those individuals have come out against President Trump uh, throughout his presidency, certainly early on and before he became president. Have their views changed? I mean, sort of among moderate Republicans, are they are they more supportive of President Trump now? Well, I think Senator Rubio has has been, you know, pretty supportive, uh, particularly over the last, you know, couple months, year or so. Uh, I think he's been supportive on policy. I think with respect to this impeachment debate, uh, it's been pretty clear. He's been pretty forceful, I think, in arguing that he doesn't believe this is a, a removable offense. And he also, you may recall, voted against trying to hear from additional witnesses. So I think he's been fairly conventional. He has spoken out against the president a few times on, on some foreign policy issues, but by and large, I think 
he's been he's been pretty consistent in supporting the president. Senator Romney, I think, has been in a slightly different position, and he's obviously been seen as more of a maverick. I think that reflects the fact, first of all, that um, you know Senator Romney ha- has been somebody who who comes politically from a different kind of constituency. He's got got some more political safety, one would argue, than Senator Rubio does in Florida, which is a swingier state. And and I do think that Senator Romney is a different phase of his career, quite frankly. Um, you know, he's been the nominee of the Republican Party. He's been somebody who's been an elder statesman in the Republican Party for a while. Um, I, I think he's had the latitude and the freedom to, frankly, speak his mind much well, hold, more. But this is this openly. is a, this is a compelling point. He's more uh, in a position to speak his mind. Do other Republicans feel similarly to him when they're not speaking in public? <laughs> yeah, well, that's the that's the key uh, modifier there, Lisa, is when they're not in public. Uh, I think a lot of Republicans privately are are you know not happy with the president's behavior on the Ukraine situation. They would say that privately, but publicly they haven't they haven't stood out and said that because they fear the repercussions and or they believe that the way the Republican Party is now there will be electoral consequences to speaking out against the president. So yeah, there definitely is this dichotomy between private and public. Lonnie, just real quickly, 30 seconds. How do you handicap the Democratic field? We had that debacle in the Iowa caucuses. Just right now, how do you handicap that field? Uh, I, I think it's going to consolidate to uh, you know one progressive and one moderate. Uh, I, I see probably Bernie Sanders as the inside track on the progressive side. On the moderate side, it's tough to tell. Pete Buttigieg did well in Iowa, but it remains to be seen if he can win in diverse states. And I think the biggest beneficiary from last night might actually be Mike Bloomberg because of the opportunity he has going forward to compete and be really the only person with the resources to compete once we get to Super Tuesday, which is a, a big haul of delegates, which is at the end of the day what matters. Lonnie Chen, uh, thank you so much for being with us. Lonnie Chen is the David and Diane Steffi Research Fellow at the Hoover Institution, also Director of Domestic Policy Studies and Lecturer in the Public Policy Program at Stanford University. We should say Mike Bloomberg is the founder and majority owner of Bloomberg LP, which owns this radio station, uh, just as a disclaimer. And we will continue to follow uh, what happens with respect to the ongoing elections. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz One. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.